When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. Now then, my lord, as the lord lives, as your soul lives, because the lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my lord be given to the young men who follow my lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the lord will certainly make my lord a sure house, because my lord is fighting the battles of the lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up and pursue you, and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt, and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal as much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Uh, so please join me in prayer. Uh, Lord, um, I just really appreciated the songs we sang this morning. You are so good to us. Um, you do pursue us when we're looking away, and you're faithful. And Lord, what more could we ask for uh, than a God who loves us and is faithful to us, even when we're not? Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, this morning I want to pray for Joanne Sadler. I, I want to ask you boldly for a miracle. Lord, would you cause um, the system that she's in in the medical care, Lord, would you cause a great movement in that system. Lord, get her back home into her house with household care, with somebody to be there to take care of her in her home until she gets scheduled for her knee surgery. And Lord, she doesn't need to be languishing in a bed alone, uh, paying all that money just to sit waiting for knee surgery. So Lord, would you move in a mighty way, bring Joanne home, bring her home care, provide for her, and Lord, get the, uh, the knee replacement surgery scheduled soon and, and just have mercy on her. Bring her back to what's familiar and comfortable to her. Have mercy, Lord, we pray. And Lord, I want to pray for um, our brother in Christ, Daniel Holmquist, previous pastor, pastor at uh, Calvary um, Evangelical Free Church in, in New Jersey. Lord, our brother is, is sick, um, battling cancer coming and going. Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen him. He's had a rough week with chemo, 
and, uh, and all the other things that he's facing physically. Lord, give him physical strength and, and strength of spirit to endure. Uh, Lord, walk with him through that. And Father, with the uh, opposition that he's facing in his church, uh, the, the struggles that uh, leadership is having there, we just pray, Lord Jesus, that you, since you are the head of the church, Lord, would you exercise your authority in that position? And Lord, would you bring about in a miraculous change of heart on everybody's part so that we would be striving in the unity of the spirit, which we've already got, that we'd be striving to maintain it. Lord, would you make that a present reality at Calvary EV Free and have mercy on them? And Lord, I just pray that uh, in the midst of all of that, everybody who's involved would remember that your strength is made perfect in our weakness, that we are showing who you are when we're at our weakest and not trying to exert our strength, our authority, our position, our power. And so, Lord, would you grant uh, everybody involved their humility, grant Dave, uh, Daniel healing and restoration. And, Lord, we just look forward to a peaceful, positive resolution to all those situations that are going on. Have mercy, we pray. And, Lord, I want to pray especially this morning for our brother Aaron Marcus um, and his father. Uh, Lord, his father struggles with Parkinson and has had really a bad week. And uh, mobility is a problem. And, uh, Lord, thank you that you moved Aaron back to the West Coast, that he could be with his, or East Coast, rather, so that he could be with his father as he struggles through this. And I pray that you would grant uh, Aaron and his whole family wisdom and mercy. And, Lord, I pray that in uh, Aaron's father's weakness, he would hear the gospel again, but hear it for the first time as something that truly is beautiful and good news. And so, Lord, have mercy on, the, on them. And uh, thank you for Aaron uh, serving and loving his father. And I pray for healing in that situation, too. And again, Lord, would you show your, your strength perfected in that weakness. And, Lord, we've turned now to your word. We need to hear from you. So would you be with us? And uh, Holy Spirit, open our hearts, uh, clear our minds, help us to see and to understand what you have for us this morning. And we ask all of these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh, for those of you who are on social media, you've probably seen these kind of videos. For those of you who are not on social media, you are blessed above all men. <laughs> uh, but you, you see these kind of videos, they show up all the time. Uh, security camera footage. And there's one that's uh, security camera footage from a Mexican bakery, or not bakery, butcher shop. And uh, so there's a, a man standing at the counter talking to the woman at the register. And he's got a cowboy hat on, and he's got something in his hands. And the door flies open, and a young man comes in waving a gun. And he points the gun at the, at the cowboy, and the cowboy puts his hands up, sets his papers down, puts his hands up. And then he points the gun at the cashier, and the cowboy takes off his glasses. And that's the caption of the video is, never turn your back on a cowboy when he takes off his glasses. Somebody appears from the back of the shop. The kid wheels around, points the gun at him, and the cowboy lurches and disarms the guy, and it's over. First of all, I think it's a bad idea to go into a butcher shop and try to hold them up. What do they do in butcher shops? You've got people with knives who are really good with them, so that's a bad idea. There's another one um, in an um, Arizona gas station, a uh, man standing and waiting in line. Two men come charging in. One's got a gun held out. The other one's got the bag. And the Marine, he's an ex-Marine. There is no such thing as an ex-Marine. This gun comes walking in, the guy turns around, sees it, and immediately rips the gun out of the guy's hands, flattens him, his partner takes off. He received an award from the city. We, why do those videos get such traction? Oh, there's another one I gotta tell you really quick that cracked me up. This, this doesn't go quite as well. It's a similar kind of setup, security camera from behind the, ca the cash register pointing at the front door. 
Um, it's, it's, I think it's a, a beauty shop or a nail shop or something. And an armed guy comes walking in and waving his gun around. And you can hear video or audio this time. Give me all your money. And nobody moves. Nobody flinched. Nobody did a thing. So he charged up to the register and points the gun at the, at the cashier at the register. And they're just like, yeah, and? <laughs> so the guy keeps waving and w looking around. And then he just kind of walks out. <laughs> it, it didn't work. Another one, a guy comes up to the register and pulls the gun out of his belt buckle. And he <laughs> fumbled it. And through the, belt, the gun, it wound up sliding across the counter and landing behind it. And he just kind of stands there looking for a minute and then turned around and walked out. <laughs> so he went in to, to get some money and instead lost his weapon, so that wasn't good. Why, these videos get a lot of traction. And why do they get so much traction? Why do people click on them? Well, it's because there's this inherent desire for justice. We want to see these kind of things happen. We want people to respond well. We, we're looking for that kind of thing. Um, there are videos that are not so good and things don't turn out well, and some of them are a little bit more violent, but we, we have this sense that we want to see justice happen. We want to see the right thing take place. We want to see the bad guy get it. And that's what happens in, in chapter 25. Uh, I'm going to do the whole chapter, but, but really the highlight, this focus is Abigail's speech. So that's what I want to focus on this morning. Um, you remember last week, the story was David and Saul in the cave. And David snuck up and cut off the corner of Saul's robe and, and then felt bad about it. And, and there was mercy and there was uh, restitution. This is this. This is more of that, but in a different way. You'll see why in a second. So let me summarize the story of, of chapter 25. It begins with bad news. Chapter uh, 25, verse 1 says, now Samuel died, period. That's it. <laughs> you don't get any more information about Samuel. He died. What's going on? Well, I think what's happening here is, remember, the story of 1 Samuel is the transition from judges to the kings. And so Saul, or Samuel is the last of the judges. He, he's the, the one that's going to anoint the king. And we're in this transition period with Saul being on the throne, waiting for David to arrive. And so I think the author is, is kind of painting that picture is the era of the, the judges is over. Saul has died. And then it says, all Israel assembled and mourned him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. So all Israel came and mourned for, for uh, Saul, or for Samuel. Was Saul there? Doesn't say, don't know. I can't imagine the king didn't go to that. What about David? Did David go? I really doubt that. Again, we don't know, but what we heard of David at the end of last chapter was he was out in the wilderness. He was on the run. When David and Saul um, reconciled, when Saul admitted his sin, he didn't invite David back into the court. He didn't say, come on home, I'll put you back to work, you're good. They just kind of went their separate ways. So there's still apparently some animosity there. So I doubt that's, that David went to this. As a matter of fact, what the very next verse says is, David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So it doesn't seem like he went back there. We saw him last in the wilderness of Engadi. Remember that was down by the Dead Sea where all the, the, um, the uh, caves and all that stuff was. Now it says that he rose and went down to Paran. Paran was even further south. It wasn't even in Israel anymore. Uh, we heard about Paran quite a bit in the Exodus as they're wandering. So he's gone even further south. That's, that's where David is. But apparently between verses 1 and verse 2, because verse 2 starts a new story, David is returned because we, when we meet him, he's not down south in Paran anymore. He's up near Carmel which is kind of where we left him um, 
before he, he traveled down to Engadi. He's, he's back up near uh, in Israel. Uh, so that's where the kind of sh sh focus shifts to is, is this area of Carmel. And we're introduced to a gentleman named Nebal. And he was a rich man. Uh, he was from Moan, but he was doing business in Carmel. So he's, he's traveling around. He's doing some stuff. And um, he's, he's got large flocks. And apparently, uh, while he was in the area of uh, Carmel, David and his men were around these large flocks. And they protected them. They didn't go in and steal any sheep from them. If uh, there was any trouble, the men, uh, David's men would go and protect them and uh, just kind of kept watch over him. Well, Nabal is about to get even richer because now it's sheep shearing time. So his flock is probably increased while they've been out grazing and, and, and traveling around. When they shear the sheep, when they get all of that wool, this is where his wealth is going to come from because they're going to spend some of it, they're going to sell some of it, they're going to make cloth out of some of it, he's going to sell, trade, barter, all of that. This is a good day for Nabal. This, this is when his his 401k matures and boom, he gets all the cash, right? This is when his certificate of deposit has reached its max and it, it cashes out. He, this is a good day for him. So they're, they're at their um, in, in Carmel and they're doing the sheep shearing. Uh, it's a big event. That was a, a huge event in those days. Well, David and his men have been living in the wilderness and they're probably low on supply. So David tells his men, he sends 10 young men, he says, go talk to Nabal and ask him for some uh, provisions. And the way he says it, he's, he's, he tells them, ask, um, he, he tells them, please, uh, uh, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace to be to all you have. He's, he's starting out very politely, right? This is verse six, verse seven. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing at all uh, in all the time that we were with in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young man find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please get whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. He could not be more deferring, right? Your son David. This is the king, almost. He's, he's approaching the throne, but he comes to him and he says, he's very um, uh, submissive. He says to your son David, ask in the most polite way. Remember that this is ancient Near East hospitality culture. You don't turn somebody away because in, out there in the wilderness, they could die if you don't provide for them. So think of some of the stories from the Old Testament. For example, Abraham, when he sees the Lord and the angels walking by, he is just insistent. You have to turn in and come and sit down and let me feed you. You can't just keep going. That was the way that it was expected to be behaved. You were supposed to provide for somebody. So David goes and asks in the most polite way he possibly can. Nabal's response is basically, who the heck are you? And just turns him away, just kind of dismisses him. He says, I hear about these, these servants running away from their masters. You're no better than that. Get out of here. Won't serve them. After all David has done for him, after all the service that he has rendered, protecting his flocks, tending to and making sure his shepherds were not attacked, this is the response he gets. And so understandably, David is angry. I almost said David is livid, but it almost rhymes, so I was afraid I'd mess that up. David is really angry. And so he tells his men, arm up, we're going hunting. They're going to go down, and he's going to wipe out everybody. That's how angry he is to be treated so poorly. 
Is that a reasonable, is that a right response? Is that over the top? Uh, I don't know, I'm not in that situation. Maybe their supplies were so low, if they don't do something, they're gonna die. I, I'm not sure what's going on, but David himself is very angry. Now, the scene switches. One of the young men from the shearing find, here, overhears all this and takes off and runs off to Nabal's wife, Abigail. So Abigail is, she's not sitting at home um, knitting. She is the manager of the household. She is running all of this. So while Nabal is out tending to the sheep and doing this kind of stuff, she's basically the business manager at the center of this. And, and she is described as a beautiful woman with discretion. She's wise. Um, this is why, probably, I'm guessing this is why Nabal was so rich. It was not because of him, but because of her. And so the young man runs to her and explains what happens. And um, the way he describes it is, is pretty amazing. He, he recounts the story. David has sent some messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. And then when he sums it up at the end, he says, Now therefore, verse 17, know this and consider what you should do. All right, we know what the bosses said. Now you figure this out. Know what we should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So his reputation is so well known that when the young man comes to his wife, he disses him to her face because everybody knows what Nabal is like. Nabal is Hebrew for fool. And as his name, so is he. He is an idiot. And so this is what happens. He runs to, he, uh, the young man runs to Abigail. Um, Abigail, being a woman of wisdom and discretion, she immediately gathers up some supplies, puts them on donkeys, says, go ahead of me, I'll be right behind you. And she heads for where David has been, where she figures she'll run into him. And says, as she came under the cover of the mountain, in other words, as she's approaching the mountain, David and his men are coming down. They see it, they head towards her. And she very smartly, very wisely, gets off the donkey and bows face to the ground. So as David went and, and was kind of uh, submissive to Nabal and asking kindly, she's doing the same thing. She is acknowledging he's superior. And she's coming in in great vulnerability. Now what comes next is a speech that I had Matt read, and, and it's important. It's the longest discourse in the whole chapter. That's why I think it's the center of it. And so you heard what she said. She, she appeals to David. And then David responds, you saved me. Thank you. And he, he accepts this gift from her, and then he goes on his way. Um, so then the story continues. The next day, um, Abigail catches up with Nabal, and uh, the feast is still going really well. Uh, he's drunk. Now, if he is such a bullheaded person that he won't listen to you when he's sober, imagine what he's like when he's drunk. So she just kind of goes, okay, we'll let this rest. The next morning, she tells Nabal what happened. David was coming to take your head off your shoulders because you're such a jerk. And what, what it says is that his heart failed him and he turned to stone. Now, I don't think that means that he went into catatonic shock and, and didn't move. Um, I think what happens was he was cut to his heart. He realized what a moron he had been and how dangerous this was. And so he's just immobile. He's, he's so overwhelmed with grief and, and shame and shock at what he'd done. He does nothing. And then it says 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. God killed him. When David hears about Nabal's death, he sends him young men to get Abigail and to in, invite her, call her in to be his wife. 
That's a wise move. Not only is she beautiful, that's a good thing, but she's also very wise, very smart. She's done well in this household. She will be a real asset when he ascends to the throne. So it, it's a win-win by, by marrying her. And so the chapter ends, uh, David taking her as wi his wife, and it says, David also took Anoyim Anoyim of Jezreel. I'm sorry, I probably mispronounced that. And both of them became his wives. And then reminds us, oh, and by the way, remember he was married to Michael? Well, she's with somebody else now. But she's still his, his wife. So that's, that's the, the bulk of the story. That's what's going on. As I said, Abigail's speech is the longest discourse. The second longest is the young man who talks to her. But that really is setting up for what she does and what she says. So I think that's the heart of the thing. That's the center of the story is what Abigail says. She comes to David, and she's not so much asking for mercy, though she does ask for mercy. Instead, what she appeals to is she wants justice. She's appealed to him, appealing to him for, I'm um, not right, justice. Um, She's appealing to him for righteousness. That's what she wants is, is righteousness. And the reason I say that is because there's something that's repeated three times in this section. Uh, she says in verse 26, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do you evil be as my Lord Nabal. She says again in verses 30 and 31, And the Lord... When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord, my Lord shall have no cause for grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And then David's response, what he, what he hears her saying, what he responds to is in verse 33, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. That is what this was about. It, and isn't it fascinating how it fits with last week? Last week, David was in this, the cave with Saul. His young men are saying, this is your chance. Go kill him. This is your time. You can rise up and take him out. And David's, his heart is cut. He's like, no, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that to my Lord. I can't do that to the one that the Lord has anointed. And he refuses. This, this week, it's the exact opposite. David is set. He's going to go kill. And it's not his men that stop him. It's Abigail who comes and, and appeals to him and stops him. So it, it's kind of these two mirror things. I think it's a healthy reminder that David is not perfect. Where he did really well last week, we can applaud what he did last week. This week, he was restrained by Abigail's wisdom, not by himself. It was her appealing to the act of righteousness here that got him to stop. So that's kind of the mirror images of the story. If he had gone in, if he had done what he intended to do, he would have gone in and slaughtered every man in, in Nabal's house, including Nabal. Would that be righteousness? The, the Lord has established when someone should be executed, and it's not when they don't give you food. This would have been an act of aggression, a, an act of violence because he felt slighted that would be bringing blood guilt on David's head. And it would also be David attempting to work his own salvation. Instead of relying on the Lord and saying, I don't know how the Lord's going to provide. We're almost out of food. We don't have enough to, to feed the men. What are we going to do? I'm going to rely on the Lord. Instead, I'm going to go down and slaughter this, this, um, uh, these people doing this sheep shearing and take their food from them. That would have been trying to work his own salvation. 
And so David, when he's confronted with that picture, rather than just his anger, he says, oh my gosh, that's not the right way to go. And he, he repents. Now, remember we said that the, the book of 1 Samuel, it's about the rise of the kingdom, um, the end of the judges, the rise of the kingdom. And it is kind of mirroring and picturing for us the coming kingdom of God. And, and so when we come to this question, when we're looking at this, uh, this response that David has, um, it raises a question for us, if that's what David wanted to do and was confronted with the truth and repented, how should we respond? How should the church respond when we're wronged? What should we do? And, and the reason I bring it up like this is because with David right now, David is complicated, right? Because he's going to be the king. And with David, you get the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man merging into one. But that was a temporary situation. That was, that was Israel for a while, and it didn't work out so well. What we see today is what we have is called two-kingdom theology, or the city of man and the city of God. That's what Augustine wrote about in the 400s, is there is the city of man. And the city of man is, is given the sword. Caesar, according to uh, Romans 13, was given the sword for a reason. The, the function of government is to maintain the peace. The role, the God-ordained role for government is to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. That's the city of man. We're never going to get it right because it's the city of man. We're always going to be wrestling, going back and forth. How can we land right on this? Are we going to be able to do it or are we not? And we're always going to fumble it. It's never going to look perfect. We need somebody who's going to come and rule and reign and be perfect and know the hearts of men, and, and that's coming. But in the meantime, we're living in the city of man. And it's clumsy, and it's awkward, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's bad. It's just the way it is. But we are not members of the city of man. We're members of the, king, the city of God or the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is in this world, and it's spreading. It's like yeast in a, in a lump of dough. It's spreading out. It's like a, a field that's raising up, and there's weeds, and there's, there's uh, uh, wheat. And, and that's the nature of the kingdom of God. It's spreading. So the question for us is not how should the city of man respond. For us, the question is how should the city of God respond. And really, that's where David is at at this point, because he's not on the throne. He's like us. He's, he, he knows that there's a future coming where... His reign is secure, but in the meantime, he's out in the wild. He's not serving, he's not reigning yet. So how should he respond? How should he behave? And so that's the question we have for us is how should the church behave when we're wronged? And we will be wronged. Jesus said, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. As the city of God is, is coexisting with the city of man, there's going to be times of conflict. How do you respond? Well, first of all, I think James has a really good statement. He says in, in the first chapter of James, Know this, my brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. The city of man is never going to get it right because the city of man is looking from humanistic perspectives and finding morals as they figure them out. That, that kind of anger will never produce the righteousness of God. So we shouldn't behave like that. We shouldn't mirror that. So does that mean that we stoically never be angry? I have been deeply wronged and I refuse to be angry. Absolutely not. That's not a complete biblical picture. Paul himself said in Ephesians 4, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So if we're wronged, when we're wronged, 
If you're angry, that's okay. That's a good, normal response. Just don't sin. Don't let your, your anger do what it did to David, which is, I'm taking up the sword and I'm going to go, I'm lifting some heads off some shoulders this week. It's been a bad week. We're not supposed to do that. The problem is if we do, then we're, we become guilty of blood guilt and we try to work our own salvation. So think, for example, of um, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. What it says there is all of these people in this hall, they're not looking for a city made with hands, a city made by man. They're all looking towards a heavenly city. Now, it didn't, it, it's, what it pictures them doing is not being a monastic and saying, I want nothing to do with that, that city then. I'm going to be distant and dis detached and never involved. What it shows them is as wanderers, as sojourners, wandering through the city of man, through this, this time period now where, where men are ruling, but not looking at it as this is our home. So they're not detached, they're not remote, but they're not involved either. They're not marrying into it. They're, they're walking that balance. And so that's how we need to respond when we are wronged, when, we, when, when things turn against us. And, that's happening in our culture. Our culture is shifting, and now Christians are really the responsibility, or Christians are responsible for just about every bad thing that ever happened. Um, it's because you guys were in charge for too long and you messed it up. The response, the, the gut response, is to respond in kind. I'm, I'm going to take over. We're going we're gonna to make this happen. That's why last month when we did the ta uh, Taproom Theology Talk, we talked about Christian nationalism. That's the effort by Christians to take over, be in charge, and enforce the way it should be. Um, it's, it's a response because we're losing authority within our culture, and so we want to take over and, and regain that authority. It's not the right way to do it. Be angry, but do not sin. Be looking for that, that kingdom that God has established, that city that he's laid the foundation for. Be waiting for that. And so that's how we need to beha behave with that. That's big, that's, that's external, that's the, the big, huge world around us. What do we do on a personal level? Well, think about the issue, say for example, church discipline. Someone in the church has done something wrong, they have sinned and they are not repenting. If you go to Matthew 18, you see how very slow and deliberate Jesus makes church discipline. It's not, they did that, lop their heads off. It's go to them and go to them and go to them, and go to them, and then if they won't respond, then put them out of the church. It, it, he, why does he do it that way? Because we are never going to get justice right. We're going to miss something. We're going to misunderstand. So what Jesus establishes for us in church discipline is be patient, be slow, go at it deliberately, talk with them, and hopefully you'll find repentance in the, matter, in the middle of that. I think that's a good model for how we should respond in a lot of different ways, not just in church discipline. So the first thing that we have to do is recognize that we're imperfect. Jesus has saved us. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been given a new heart, and yet sin still lingers. It's still around us. So be humble and acknowledge that. So think of Galatians chapter 6. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So what does he mean by you who are spiritual? Well, spiritual is a way in the, um, in the Bible most often of talking of someone who is in line with, in step with, under the dominion, under the control more than, than other people of the Holy Spirit. So how much we're in line with the Holy Spirit, somebody who's really mature in the face, you go correct them. 
with a spirit of gentleness. But that's not all he said. What he says next is, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. That's a matter of humility. That's a matter of saying, brother, you're wrong. And then recognizing, and I could be wrong too. So this is, this is how our attitude in the kingdom of man, God should look as we live in this kingdom of man. So be patient, be calm, be kind. So what do you do when, when the wrong is more than just a church discipline matter? When it's something outrageous that the church has been charged with something just way over the top or uh, someone is attacked. I, I read a story, um, gosh, I think it was 2006. It was in a, um, a magazine about um, a youth minister who had a, a person in his ministry who had been raped as a child. And she was very angry at God about this. Why did, not, why did God not stop this? How could that be? And so the youth minister said, well, he couldn't. He couldn't have stopped it. And if you're going to tell me that I have to acknowledge that God could have stopped it and didn't, then I just I don't want to worship that God. I'm only going to worship a God who is at least as compassionate as I am. That's what he said in printing. The man's no longer a Christian, not surprisingly. The, the problem was he didn't want to look at this girl and tell her, if you're mad at God and you're not walking with him, you're going to go to hell, and you need to not do that. And so that was his response is to say, well, God couldn't have done anything about it. Um, he's really sorry it happened, that kind of thing. What he told her by refusing to talk about hell, by refusing to talk about God's justice, what he told her is, you were raped and the guy got away with it. He walks free. If he is dead and he's just disappeared because there's no afterlife, he got away with it. And how are you supposed to comfort this girl? How are you supposed to? You, you, I would rather say to her, you have a right to be angry. This was horrible. This was an absolutely horrible thing. But understand this. Nobody gets away with it. Nobody gets away with anything. Either that man's sins will be visited on him. And as our statement of faith says, he will suffer eternal conscious torment for what he's done. Or... His sins were put on Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ bore the, the fires of hell for him. But nobody gets away with it. Nobody gets away with nothing. So when we're facing this outrage, this, this opposition, this, this persecution, this suffering, when people are so wrong to us, when Christians in North Korea are locked in cellars for their entire lives because they're Christians, how do you respond to that? Well, one of the ways that you respond to it is to recognize who's in charge. So Romans 12 says, if it possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, as much as you possibly can. Live peaceably with all. I think he recognizes that that's not our national, na national our natural response. That's not how we're going to approach this. And so he goes on, he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. The, the, the city of God, in the midst of the city of man, the way we respond to outrage, to persecution, to opposition, to ridicule, all of that is not in kind. We respond with love. How can I do that? How can I, how can I absorb that wrong? How can I let it go? 
because you know it's not going to be let go. You're trusting God and you're saying, Lord, you do this. So the, back to David, this is the problem with David. He was going to go execute everybody in Nabal's host, house. He was going to bring about salvation by his own hand instead of saying it's the Lord who judges. He was able to do that with Saul. He was able to look at Saul and go, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. But when he looked at Nabal, he said, this is a different category and I'm going to slaughter him. In other words, he could recognize God's work in Saul because Saul was God's anointed, but he couldn't recognize God's work in Nabal, who was an image bearer of God. As foolish, as brutish, as moronic as he was, he was still an image bearer of God. So that's God's point is, is leave it to him. He'll take care of it. In the meantime, continue to do good, to do what is right and what is just. So Peter, I read this last week. I'm going to read it again from 1 Peter chapter 2. When he was reviled, that is Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continuing trusting himself to him who judges justly. So that's our call. That's how we're supposed to do this. This is what we're supposed to be doing in the midst of this crooked and bent world as we're trying desperately to walk with Jesus, and it looks wrong to them. The way we're supposed to respond is with care and love and compassion to be kind, to, to return hate with love. And I, I started by talking about social media. You don't see that very often on social media. It's usually name calling back and forth. It's really unfortunate. And that affects the soul, that sinks in. So let's remember this. This is, this is what it means for David right now to be exercising the kingdom of God, though he has not ascended to the throne to be in the kingdom of man, is he is being trained right now in the wilderness to have that attitude to remember that it's God who delivers, it's God who saves, it's God who will repay, and that we should not be doing that. that. That's not what it's like. And so we have to have this long view. As difficult and as ugly sometimes as we think the, the doctrine of hell is, um, there are people who just can't, who can't wrestle with it. It's, it's just too much, and honestly, it should be. When you think about what hell actually is, eternal, conscious, standing in front of God, hating his guts and him pouring out his wrath on you forever. It's a terrifying situation. Here's the good news. You don't have to do that. You don't have to go there. It's possible to escape that. And so my advice is, if you can, do. So hell should be uncomfortable. It should be a thorn under our saddle. It should be a burr on our side. It should be something we don't want. But the answer is not deny it. The answer is lead people to not go there to the best of our ability, to the maximum amount of our, our strength, why don't we make sure that the fewer people as possible go there? That's a better answer. Because what happens is not unjust. I think people who have a problem with hell think it's unjust. How could God punish a person eternally for sins they committed in a lifetime? How is that right? And, and it must not be, therefore God must not do it. If we don't have... God's justice, if we don't have God's wrath, if we don't have him dealing with sin in reality, we have very little hope. We have to say that God is perfect and right and good and what he does is just. That's going to give David the hope that he has that Nabal will get what's coming to him, which he did. God struck him. Did David strike him? No, God struck him. It, it gives us the hope that that poor girl who was raped as a child, the person who did it, God's going to deal with that. Faithfully, good, honestly, right. Whatever he did, he will receive the punishment for. 
It gives us the hope to say, when I'm opposed, when oppressed, um, swindled, lied about, stolen from, uh, whatever the, the horrible thing that we face is, God's aware of it, and God is going to deal with it. And so that gives us the power, the strength, and the, in the meantime, to be angry and to not sin, to, to not seek vengeance, but instead pour love on our, on our, um, on our opponents. And that's the important lesson that David learned. That's what he got in the wilderness. It's a beautiful demonstration of the city of God existing in the city of man. It's not easy, my friends. It's not easy to absorb loss. To forgive somebody means I have something I have a right to and I'm not claiming it. That's a difficult proposition. But don't forget the future that we have ahead of us. In Revelation 6, um, they opened this, the fifth seal. These seals were being opened throughout history. And John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It is not an unrighteous thing to seek justice. They were wrongly murdered and they're asking for proper justice, but they're appealing to God, sovereign Lord, holy and true. And it says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There is a definite number. There is a, a set limit to how much suffering we will bear. And then at the right time, in the right way, with perfect justice, God will act. That's how we can bear it in the meantime. That's how we can walk through this world in the meantime. And by the way, that's not just human evil. That's physical evil. That's, that's natural evil. That's the opposition that we meet in our bodies decaying because of cancer and sin and that kind of thing. That it's it's the, the struggle that we have when um, earthquakes strike and all of those other things like that, those bad things that happen to us. All of that is under this umbrella. God is aware. God is in control, and God will answer. He will deal with it. Think about that when you think about Joanne languishing in the uh, nursing or the care center, or Daniel wrestling with cancer in his body, or Aaron Marcus's father struggling through Parkinson. These things are not beyond God's awareness, his control, and he is dealing with them in the best and most appropriate way possible. Lord, give us hope. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's very easy for me to stand and, and talk about these things in the abstract, to point at things at a distance. Lord, for most of us here, I think our lives are going pretty well. We're pretty comfortable. Things are going pretty, pretty smoothly. Um, some bumps in the road occasionally, but um, Lord, overall, we're, we're not being locked in prison. We're not thrown to wild beasts. We're not arrested for our faith. So, Lord, I pray that you would take the words that we heard this morning, the example that we saw from David, actually the example we saw from Abigail more than David, the desire for justice. Lord, would you cause those things to root in our hearts so when we face times like that, so when struggle and difficulty and trial come our way, Lord, we have a sure and steady hope to hang on to, to know, Lord Jesus, that you endured it for us, that you walked that path. And Lord, cause us to have hope in the kingdom of man, or the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. Help us to wait for that kingdom that's coming when Jesus returns. And we ask this in his name. Amen.